How to Play, Episode K, A Few of My Least Favorite Things. Hello and welcome back to the How to Play podcast. This is your host, Ryan Sturm, coming to you from the How to Play studios in Western New York. The How to Play podcast is all about learning and teaching games. This is one of How to Play's special lettered episodes. What's it about? Well, whatever it is, it's going to be special. For more How to Play episodes, special episodes, teaching guides, our discussion forums, and to help support the show, visit our website at www.howtoplaypodcast.com. Also, be sure to visit our affiliated podcast on the Dice Tower Network at dicetowernetwork.com. Now let's get to today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to sort of a bonus episode of How to Play. What I'd like to do today is that I've had a lot of requests to go back and compile some of those Dice Tower segments that I have did. So I'm going to take all of those segments from the I Don't Like series of the last year or so and put them together here and add a few notes in between each one. So I've got six great segments here from the last year of my contributions there to the Dice Tower. Now, I'm not going to uh, beat around the bush here. I have a self-serving reason to put this out, and that is as a final push for our summer fundraiser. The support so far has been phenomenal. Uh, I've gotten donations from all over the world. It's been great, but we're not there at the goal yet. We're very close, but donations have slowed almost to a halt, and I'm worried we're not going to make it. We have 82 supporters. We need 18 more of you listeners to donate to the How to Play podcast of the minimum suggested of $10. By the time this releases and the time you hear it, there's probably just over a week left, and so we really need need you, yes you sir or ma'am, right there to go donate today please to the How to Play podcast to support what I'm trying to make a publicly funded show here for the next six months. If you want me to produce an episode here in July, then help me reach that goal of 100. If we reach that goal of 100, then you will guarantee monthly, at a minimum, how to play episodes, as well as more Dice Tower segments. I've been very inconsistent there on the Dice Tower. I know I've heard that a lot of you enjoy some of the different things I do there. So if I get that support here to meet my fundraiser goal, then I'll do my best to put monthly segments up there to the Dice Tower as well. But that's it. Just a final reminder. We need 18 of you. Just 18. And so if you don't do it, then it may not happen. So we need your help. At least $10, you go to howtoplaypodcast.com, click on the donate button, decide how much you would like to donate, and I would appreciate it very much. Now, let's get to the content for today's episode. So today we're going to look at the six segments I did for this series called I Don't Like. So let's talk about a little bit the origin of this series. Why did I decide to do this in the first place? Well, when I started this series, I just finished my series, All I Really Need to Know, I Learned from Playing Board Games, also compiled as a separate episode, so be sure to check that out. And you know what? I wanted to do something a little bit different, something that wasn't being offered by the Dice Tower. And the Dice Tower at that time had a lot of reviews, but... There was a lot of positivity there in the Dice Tower. Most of the reviews were, yeah, it's pretty good, or this game is so great. And you know what? All games aren't great. We need to look at the games that weren't great and what 
doesn't make them great? And I think that was one of the most interesting questions that got me interested in doing this series, was thinking about some games that I was excited about, but when I played them, I just, I didn't like them. And these are games that I didn't just play once, but games I played multiple, maybe five or ten times, and just decided, you know what, I don't think that these games are for me. And exploring why it is that a lot of people like these games and I did not. And that was sort of the genesis for this series. So I decided to start this series in February of 2011 with a game that I was initially really excited about because it's uh, the theme is of a book that I read, The Pillars of the Earth. And after playing it maybe four or five times, I've just decided that, you know what, I... I don't like this game and I don't want to play it again. And trying to explore why that was. So here's my segment from Dice Tower, episode 199. Hello, Dice Tower listeners. This is Ryan from the How to Play podcast. And today I want to start a new series of critical looks at games that I just don't really like. You know, we hear a lot of positive reviews and love towards a lot of board games, and so that gets us all excited to buy lots and lots of games. Well, I think sometimes it's just as interesting to hear why people don't like games. And so I will start this series I'm going to call I Don't Like Blank. Since this episode is about 2006, I want to look at a popular game from 2006 that I don't like. I don't like The Pillars of the Earth. The Pillars of the Earth came out in 2006 during sort of the worker placement craze when all these worker placement games were coming out after Kalis. And I was very excited to play this one as I had read the books, and I loved worker placement. And so when I first got it, I was pretty excited about it. And I've played the game about four or five times and come to the conclusion that I just don't want to play this game anymore. If you've never played this game, it's a game loosely based on Ken Follett's book, The Pillars of the Earth, and the idea is you're all builders building a cathedral. You place workers to get resources and then convert those resources into points, thematically building the cathedral. Now, a lot of games do this. They have you get cubes and convert those cubes into points. But when it comes right down to it, that's all this game really feels like you're doing, is getting cubes and turning cubes into points which is a shame because it has such an interesting thematic background. It has the plot and characters of a great book with which to draw from, and it really doesn't build upon that. It has these cards that you can get that has the names of the characters of the book, and you're building a cathedral, but that's pretty much it. Another criticism of the game is it doesn't really feel like it's going anywhere. Every turn you have sort of the same choices for your worker placement. There's five rounds of doing it, and it sort of just feels like you're doing the same thing over and over again. It really just feels like you're going through the motions. And lastly, there's just so many other good worker placement games out there to choose from. If you want a medium weight worker placement game, there's a lot of other really good ones. Stone Age, Age of Empires 3, and the recent game Carson City. And if you want to tackle something more meatier, you could look at Kalis or Dominant Species. There are some games that really hold up the test of time and shine. But looking back five years later, I don't think that Pillars of the Earth is one of those games. I just don't think I need to play this one anymore. I think there's a lot of other games out there that do what it does better. There comes a point where you have to be honest with yourself about how you feel about a game, even if you might have dropped 50 bucks on it or customized the pieces or, you know painted that cathedral and 
stuck little decals on it for windows. If the game isn't fun, it's just not fun. And I think some time separation can really help people be more honest about their feelings about a game. A couple of years back, if people asked me what I thought about Pillars of the Earth, I'd probably say, oh, you know, it's pretty good or it's all right. But finally, five years later, I can admit to myself, I don't like Pillars of the Earth. So there it was. Uh, it's very interesting to look back and listen to that episode because at this time, Ludology sort of just was getting underway right when I did that first episode. And so I hadn't really dug into games as as much in that at that point analytically. And of course, later on at episode seven or eight, we got into this concept of narrative arc that bef- when I was recording this was relatively unfamiliar to me. It's something I hadn't really thought about how a game is like a story like you would find in a book or a movie. And so this is the concept that was elusive to me as to why this game felt so flat and didn't really have any building or emotional response. And we get to that more when we get to El Grande a bit later. But from there, speaking of ludology, we just did an episode on episode three at this time in March of 2011, and we talked about catch the leader mechanics. And one of them that, that's quite interesting is that of the, the catch-up mechanic in Power Grid, which I talked about in this next segment. Hello everyone, this is Ryan Sturm, and I'm continuing in my series, I Don't Like Blank. Yes, this is a series that I've created to try to alienate my whole audience by talking about popular games and inspire anger by picking on some very popular games. Well, that's not quite my intention. My intention here is to explore some really popular games and look at ones that a lot of people really love, but for one reason or another just didn't do it for me and trying to explore some of the reasons why game tastes differ, and perhaps some of the reasons that might make games less fun. So in my last segment, I talked about a game that I thought was sort of weak and mediocre in its genre, and it didn't really offer a whole lot new to the table. Now the game I'm talking about today is quite the opposite. It's really a landmark game, and really has brought a lot to the hobby. So what game am I talking about? I don't like Power Grid. Oh my gosh, what? Oh my goodness, what did he get say? Him. Oh gosh, get him! Get his geek card! What did he say? Did he say Ban his board game geek account! Yes, I am putting myself at great danger by saying this because it's beloved by many. If you're not familiar with the game, here's a quick rundown of what really goes on in this game. There are four major things that you're doing. You're going to hold auctions in which you'll have the opportunity to buy a power plant. Then you're able to set up a power station on a city on a map on the board, and you're going to be developing this network on a map, competing for territory with the other players. Then players take turns in buying the resources to run their power plants. And finally, players run their power plants to make more money to go through the whole process all over again. Now, there's one part of this game that really bugs me, and I can't get over it. And that part of the game is how turn order is established. Turn order is determined by the size of your network, that is the number of cities that you've placed your little house in. 
If you have the most cities in your network, then you're considered to be winning, and so this impacts your turn order. With those four things we talked about, what that means is you have to go first in the auction, you have to buy your cities last, and you have to buy your resources last. And until you've played this game once or twice, you don't really understand the full implication of this in that if you are the person in this position, if you put yourself in this position, you're going to be at a very disadvantageous position for the following turn. And it leads to this whole little sub-game, this almost game of chicken, as far as how many cities are people going to build. And I've found that this little sub-game is just something that I'm not really that interested in. You don't always have to stay far behind, but you do have to be aware of how that's going to impact you in following turns. And I think this little sub-game of trying to figure out where you're going to be in the turn order really impacts the game thematically. It doesn't really hold any connection as to why you would not want to build into more cities because of turn order. Now, for some people, that doesn't really matter. They'd say that, you know, it's not meant to be a simulation, but yet it really takes away from the idea that you're trying to power as many cities as possible. I think that one of the reasons it was designed in this way is it's a good way to keep the game close. Whereas if you gave the person who had the largest network these advantages, then they would probably run away with the game. But the impact it has on players having to play this game of chicken has a severe impact on the way that players play the game. There's a lot of elements of Power Grid I do like. I like the auctions for the different kinds of plants. I like how they convert differently, how you have to weigh which power plant you're going to take based on what the other players have purchased. I like the strategic decisions of building your network and competing for space and the supply and demand that's involved and how geography can impact your network. There's a lot of cool things going on there. But sometimes just one element of a game can completely impact the play of a game into a game experience that you're just not that interested in. And that's what I've discovered about my opinion of this game. I've discovered that, personally, I just don't want to play this game anymore. I don't like Power Grid. Get him! Get his geek card! What did he say? Did he say Power He's a witch! Ban his board game geek account! So that segment set off a little bit of a firestorm, which... I really enjoyed because I, I thought it was an interesting topic. I mean, clearly there's a mechanic there that people have different feelings on. Some people really enjoy manipulating that mechanic. Uh, myself, not so much. In fact, I probably should have asked Eric to include his, his rebuttal rant uh, that came directly after that in episode 201. It was, it was quite entertaining, however, you know, slightly m misguided. Uh, but... <laughs> But Eric Summer offered his opinion to my opinion quite hotly. And to get such a mild-mannered, nice guy sort of fired up is uh, was pretty entertaining. And actually, he wasn't the only person who got fired up. I know there was, there was quite a bit of response to that episode. And in fact, not only just to that episode in general, but just the, the overall negativity of the series. And so I, I decided to dial it back a little bit and, you know, it's hard being the negative bad guy all the time, so I decided to do take sort of a more humorous approach with the next few episodes. Those still sort of follow, following in line with, with things that bother me. They weren't necessarily board games, but things that bothered my game sensibilities. You know, when you, you learn about a game and it's just not a good game as a gamer, that really bothers you. Even if they're fictional 
examples of games, which I covered in the next segment on Quidditch, which was in episode 207 of the Dice Tower on May 2nd, 2011. Hello, Dice Tower listeners. This is Ryan Sturm. It's great to be back. I apologize for my absence. After my Power Grid segment, I was forced to relocate my family to Greenland. The work is hard here, uh, but it's no less than, than I deserve. Though bravely, I soldier on with my series, I Don't Like Blank. I don't like Quidditch. Yes, am I the only person in the whole world who read the rules for the game Quidditch and said, this is absolutely ridiculous? As a game enthusiast, I I just can't get over how badly designed this game is. For those of you muggles out there, Quidditch is a game, of course, played on broomsticks in the fictional world of Harry Potter. Here are the rules of the game. Each side has a team of seven players who are going to be flying around the field on broomsticks. Now, there is a field, which I'm not really sure why, because all of the game is taking place in the air. But regardless, there's a field, and the field has hoops high up in the air. And there's a few things going on with this game. There is a quaffle ball, and that ball is red and the players have to try to take the ball and pass the ball and throw that ball in the hoop and try to get it by the keeper. Much like a game of basketball, but it's sort of played in the air. And there's these other balls called the bludgers that are meant to just knock over people on the teams. You have these bats and you can hit the bludgers towards the other people to get them to try to drop the quaffle or whatnot. And so this is the main part of the game that six of the members of the team are involved in, right? And every time a team scores a goal with the quaffle, they get 10 points. All right, all well and good so far, right? Then our friend J.K. Rowling goes on to explain there is a side game involving the Golden Snitch. And the Golden Snitch is a small little golden ball with wings that flies around very rapidly. Phew! And there are two people, one on each team, called the Seekers. Coincidentally, these people often tend to be the main protagonist and antagonist in the book. These Seekers then fly around and try to catch this golden snitch. And if a Seeker manages to catch the golden snitch, which is apparently very fast, that triggers the end of the game. And the team that manages to catch the golden snitch scores 150 points. What? 150 points? And this ends the game? And that's equal to 15 goals with the quaffle? I mean, imagine if our sports worked out this way. Imagine if we had a game of American football, but we add a rule called the mouser. And so everybody goes and plays that normal game of American football. But then we have two players that are really good at running. And we release a mouse. And they have to run around the stadium trying to capture the mouse. Now, the game of football won't end until somebody captures the mouse. And when someone does capture the mouse, that team gets 100 points. And then we see who wins. We're no longer playing football anymore. We're playing capture the mouse. What those other people are doing is completely irrelevant. Or you could apply this concept to one of your favorite board games. Say, for example, you are all playing a game of Agricola, but each player is provided with a Rubik's Cube. You continue playing games of Agricola until one player has solved the Rubik's Cube. And at that point, he or she is declared the winner. Absolutely ridiculous. 
worst fictional game ever. I don't like Quidditch. So that was Quidditch, and I actually got quite a different response from Eric on that one. He he was he had backed me and agreed that Quidditch indeed was a silly game, and uh, I had a good bit of fun from that one, and and continued in the humorous side of this series with a take it actually something you know I wasn't kidding about at all because uh, something that's really important to me, something that I I really care passionately about maybe not a lot of people care passionately about is game shows. I love game shows and one of the reasons for it is it just has a special part in my soul uh, of my memories as a young child of watching game shows and really fueled helped to fuel that, that that love of games that I've always had. And so I've just been angry with the horrific nature of recent game shows. In fact, the the one that offended me the most was the popularity of a certain game show called Deal or No Deal, which I explored in this next segment. This aired on episode 211 of the Dice Tower on May 30th, 2011. Hello everyone, this is Ryan Sturm of the How to Play and Ludology podcast. Let's get back to slamming some popular games, shall we? I barely survived the uproar from last time's Quidditch bashing. In fact, whenever I leave my house, I have to defend against the Guardians of Gryffindor fan club that stalks my every move. But nonetheless, we continue. Today, I don't like Deal or No Deal. You know, ever since I was a little kid, I've been obsessed with game shows. When I was in primary school, when people asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I always responded that I wanted to be Bob Barker. I'll never forgive myself for letting that opportunity slip by. Oh, Drew Carey. Someday. Someday. The state of the game show is sort of in a sad state these days. And I blame Regis Philbin. The game shows I fell in love with as a child was that they were shows with games. But starting with the smash success of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, every game show since the late 90s has become less about the games, but about creating a story. It starts with casting. You know, it used to be that any average Joe could show up on game shows, and now game shows are tightly cast to select either a sentimental hero or a raving lunatic who goes berserk every time they get a question right. The next trick is all about crafting the game. Creating a game format to last a given period of time, and within that time period to create an arc of tension that builds and builds and builds to a climax reliably by the end of that one hour time frame. As a perfect example, let's take the wildly successful Deal or No Deal. If you're unfamiliar with Deal or No Deal, this is a game about picking a random suitcase with a dollar amount inside, and it could have a range of a penny to a million dollars. The player then opens the other suitcases one at a time to see which dollar amounts are not in the box. At intervals, a fictional banker character calls on the phone, offers the player amount of money to walk away from the game. The game boils down to having progressive intervals of deciding whether or not to take an offered amount of money, which you indicate by pushing a big red button. Or you take the cover on said button and slam it down and say, NO DEAL! to wild cheers and applause. 
And this process repeats usually over four to six rounds until a player either takes an offer or holds out all the way to the agonizing end to see what's in their suitcase. And this show drew over 10 million viewers an episode. Kudos to the designers of this game. They set up a format to repeatedly create a narrative arc that builds and builds to a climax. The game starts quickly by opening six cases, and then five, and then four to build the tension. And the producers can also control this game through the role of the banker, and that gives them a huge amount of control in the amount of money that the player walks away with, but also the amount of airtime that it takes to go through this whole process. And due to a clever distribution of the prize money in the cases, even after four rounds of this, there's a 95% chance of having at least one case over 100000 bucks, and a 73% chance of having more than one big money case. And if by chance all the big prizes do happen to go away, draining the drama out of the story, well, the banker can just offer him an inordinate amount of money to walk away. They still probably got 45 minutes of airtime out of that process anyways. Into this mix, throw a few more characters. A wacky host, a lovable grandma of the contestant, attractive models holding shiny cases, dramatic music and lighting. And you've got more than a game. You've got a dramatic, real-life story that viewers just can't get enough of. Designing a board game has a lot in common with designing a game show. The designer hopes to create that narrative arc that gradual build-up that moves quickly at the start and climbs and reaches a dramatic climax, a tipping point, where players will succeed or fail and do it all in just about an hour. But a great game needs to be more than just a story. Sure, Deal or No Deal does a wonderful job of creating that narrative and reliably unfolding a dramatic story. But what is missing in Deal or No Deal is sometimes missing in some of the board games that we play. A game. When you take away the wacky host and the lovable grandma and the attractive models holding shiny cases and the dramatic theme music and the moody lighting, what are you left with? All you're doing is deciding whether or not to push a button. And what kind of a game is that? I don't like deal or no deal. So that was deal or no deal. And after I did that, sort of things had cooled a little bit. In fact, I got a couple of responses from people who said, you know, we're tired of these silly segments that you're doing, Ryan. Go back and, and hammer some games. I actually had a few people say that, and I said, all right, all right, you want it, you got it. And in fact, I had a perfect opportunity because I had recently just done episode eight of Ludology, where we were continuing to explore narrative arc, and I got a lot of a bite back when I said that El Grande did not have a strong narrative arc. And uh, a lot of people said, no, you are wrong. You're absolutely wrong and wrote very long forum posts. So in order to try to go after that, I, I compared it to a game that I think has a very strong narrative arc. And I, and I still stand by this. I still think that El Grande has a very weak, if any, narrative arc. And this, this was my evidence to explain my reasoning. And so this episode appeared on episode 223 of the Dice Tower in September of 2011. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Sturm from the How to Play and Ludology podcast, back with my series, I Don't Like Blank. And the call has come to go after one of these big popular games that a lot of people like. You want it, you got it. I don't like El Grande. 
El Grande was one of the first Euro games that I bought way back in 98. And I've played it five to ten times, and every time I played it, it just felt like it was missing something. And this has become a lot more clear after our discussion on ludology, thinking about narrative arc. If you missed that discussion, we were talking about how a great game can have a narrative arc. That is the ability of a game to hold a structure, much like in a story that you would find in a book or a movie, in which you start small, the actions, the options are growing turn by turn, and building to an exciting endgame climax in which the result is determined. I found that something I love in my favorite games is the quality of a game to evolve and change throughout its play, wherein you have choices to tread down different pathways, and each of those pathways build to unique situations that you've created through your own choices. And finally, you can use these resources, these capabilities, this identity that you've acquired throughout the game, and see if that path and those choices lead you to victory. And you know what? Even when it doesn't, there's this certain sense of satisfaction that even though you didn't win, you forged your own path, you created something, something you've never tried before, and you learn from that and you're able to see those results. And that's what I love about some of my favorite games and why I don't like El Grande. In order to illustrate this, let's look at the difference between El Grande and another area majority game, Age of Empires. A quick description of El Grande. In El Grande, there's nine turns, and on each turn, you bid for turn order using a deck of power cards. The power cards are limited to one use per game, and they dictate the amount of cubes you get for that turn. And then the player who wins the bid gets to select from a set of five action cards. The action cards tell you how many of your cubes you get to put onto the board, and give you an action, usually either to move cubes around on the board, or to score one of the regions on the board. And that's the general play of the game. Each turn you bid for turn order, and you choose a card to put cubes on the board and play an action. And every three rounds, each region on the board is scored based on who has the most cubes there. And at the end of nine rounds, the most points wins. Now my problem with the game is that the ninth turn, or the climactic turn, plays out much the same as the eighth, or the fifth, or the first turn of the game. Sure, there's more cubes on the board, and maybe there's somebody who's in the lead for points, so you try to take their points away, and there's a bit more drama on those three scoring rounds, but each round you have the same amount of options, and you have the same goal. Get cubes in sections that give you an advantage to score more points. Now let's compare that to the game Age of Empires 3, or I guess it's called Empires, the Age of Discovery now. Age of Empires has a similar significant part of the game in which you want to have the most colonists in different regions of the New World over several turns, and it has three scoring rounds. But a game of Age of Empires unfolds, whereas El Grande simply repeats. Age of Empires' main mechanic is worker placement. The main part of the game is players are taking their turns, placing their colonists onto different action spaces on the board, which let them execute different actions. Some of which is getting over to that new world and having the most colonists in a region to score points. But there's a significant difference in that in this game, each turn builds upon the previous turns. Players have the opportunity to get more workers throughout the game in order to increase their options. And there are specialist workers, which allow players to specialize their play towards one of many strategies, such as focusing on the exploration cards, or collecting trade goods, or converting natives to get more presence in the new world. Players have the ability to acquire buildings to supplement those strategies, or to give them new options that they didn't have in previous turns. And players have the ability to get soldiers to be able to blow other colonists off the map. 
The soldiers significantly drive the narrative of this game, as players will be forced to acquire defenses to defend their territories, or a player will be capable of building a massive army on the new world and declare a climactic total war on one of the final turns of the game, turning the tide towards victory. The way that Age of Empires ramps up and unfolds is a wonderful experience, capable of delivering all sorts of emotion throughout its play. Cheers, tension, and excitement. And while I respect El Grande's place and what it has done for modern games with popularizing area majority, I've never once cheered or sweated or shouted during a game of El Grande. It just sort of feels like it's gameplay. Literally flat. I don't like El Grande. So that was my El Grande segment, and I, of course, got a lot more responses from that from people who still didn't agree with me. And in fact, I remember in a recent episode of the Dice Tower, Eric, Eric uh, disputing me again, saying how he had played a recent game of El Grande. And it had marvelous arc because they started off and and player X went after player Y. And then later in the game, player Y built up and went back after um, player X. And it just had this real emotional response for them. I still stand by this segment wholeheartedly. Just because players are developing different social interactions throughout the game does not mean that the game has a strong narrative arc. You know, the game can offer players to have sort of a take-that interaction, like you would see in, in Colorado, or of course Manhattan is a big one, where one player goes after another, then one goes after the other, and back and forth. However, the thing that really gets it for me is a change in what happens for the players from the beginning of the game to the end of the game. If you look at it fundamentally in El Grande, you're simply choosing a card, placing cubes, and doing it nine times in a row. That is so much different than things that you see in the Age of Empires example I just stated, or Dominant Species, how that landscape totally changes throughout the game and your animal changes. Or one of my favorites, 18xx, when players are moving all across the board, they've built this gigantic network. Of course, Age of Steam is a similar piece where players are able to deliver all across the board and economically they're in a completely different state. Or Eric, your beloved Merchant of Venus, is a beautiful example of narrative arc where players are first exploring their galaxy and then building up their ship to at the end of the game having this gigantic ship and making these long fast runs from galaxy to galaxy beautiful narrative arc el grande not so much so then i i sort of thought i was uh, done with with this you know there are there are a few more games in fact i, I still think about doing uh, Small World and uh, Cosmic Encounter, Tom's favorite game, or, or Dominion. Um, I, I would easily and happily take on those those three particular games I think would be a lot of fun. But, you know, I, I thought maybe it was time for something different. So I set this aside for a while, but then there was just one thing that I had to get to. It was been brewing in my gaming soul for a long time and something I just had to get off my chest. And this actually is my favorite of the series, which appeared on episode 243 a lot later on in February of 2012. Hello everyone, this is Ryan Sturm from the How to Play and Ludology podcast, here to tell you about one more thing that I don't like. 
Recently, on an episode of Ludology, we were talking with Russ Wakelin about component choices in games, and, and I neglected to mention my number one pet peeve in board game component decisions. And so I thought I would complain about it here. I don't like Hobbit cards. What are Hobbit cards, you may ask? Well, you're certainly familiar with them. These are cards the size that would fit perfectly well in the hands of a hobbit. However, in the midst of a fully grown human, they simply look ridiculous. And I'm sad to say that some of my favorite games have hobbit cards in them, and they make me very angry. Let's start with Ticket to Ride. Yes, Ticket to Ride, that was a very clever notion of you to include miniature cards in the normal game so that the consumers have to go out and purchase your expansion to get the human-sized cards. The game of Ticket to Ride requires you to very thoroughly shuffle your cards, and you may need to train a very small monkey to shuffle these hobbit-sized cards. That it is, it is a feat that is quite difficult with normal human hands. It is similarly difficult to read with normal human eyesight. The hobbit-sized font that typically goes on such cards, and many of these games have critical textual information on these very tiny cards with very tiny letters. I'm looking at you, Macau, or Pillars of the Earth, or even worse, Hobbit cards containing symbology that is critically important for you to know the functions of your opponent's Hobbit cards that are across the table, such as in a game of Aura and Labora, so much that a pair of binoculars would be a useful accessory to the game. And there's something that's just not quite right about trading with hobbit cards. When I'm trading, I typically like to have the cards fanned out in front of me and holding, you know, four or five mitful of these little miniature cards as you're discussing important negotiations just makes the whole thing seem a tad silly. Players have had to hold these ridiculously small cards and trade, hearkening all the way back to the original game Civilization, and it's continued to games such as Starfarers of Catan, and even worse, when I purchased my $400 list price special edition wooden chest of Catan. Inside it, I was horrified to discover decks upon decks of Hobbit cards. I've heard tell that this is part of the European influence, that because a lot of these games were Euro games, that they wanted small cards so that they would fit on smaller little coffee tables in Paris somewhere. Well, I still want a card that I can shuffle and read and hold in my hand, even if the practicality might take more table space in something like Through the Ages or a game with 47 decks of cards like a fantasy flight game. I don't care. I want normal human cards. And please don't misunderstand me. The opposite is not a good thing either. Nobody wants those monster cards. I'm looking at you, Lost Cities. In order to shuffle those gigantic cards in that game box, I need to call my friend Shaquille O'Neal to come over and riffle shuffle them. They are too big. So that is my plea. I don't like Hobbit cards. I don't like monster-sized cards. Just normal, human-sized cards, please. Thank you.
Ugh, Hobbit cards. Boy, I still don't like Hobbit cards. In fact, I still, when I see Jeff next time, I'm so mad. He's telling me about his new game that has Hobbit cards. It just, you know, it gets my, my heart rate going a little bit faster. My blood pressure is probably just not good for me. So I, I think medically, you know, I need to talk people down from using these Hobbit cards. And I hope you will join me in this continued campaign uh, against this blight on the gaming landscape. Uh, in fact, I was uh, I got a good chuckle out of talking with Michael Lee in a recent episode of Ludology, episode 33, and I, I tried to, you know, continue my campaign there, and he was trying to suggest to people that they use little miniature dice, and you know, hobbit dice, if you will, and I was trying to, to, to tell him, please, no, can we just have human-sized components. Well, I will continue fighting that good fight. Hope, hopefully you will join me, listeners. And speaking of fighting the good fight, I hope you will support my work here for the How to Play podcast. I'm looking for a few more subscribers. If you can help, if you enjoy the work I do here at the How to Play studios, I need your help in order to continue with this show at a regular rate. And so go to howtoplaypodcast.com and make a donation by July 8th. If you're listening to this after July 8th, still make a donation and we'll apply it towards the next cycle of fundraising efforts. So thank you so much, everybody, for listening. I hope you enjoyed going over those segments. I enjoyed reflecting back on sort of the last year or so uh, of some of these segments. It was really a lot of fun. And I look forward to, to doing some more work there on the Dice Tower. Well, that's it for me this time. Will you hear me with a fresh new episode in July? That is up to you. I sure hope so. We're so close. We just need a few more. So please come by and support us. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Ryan Sturm of the How to Play Podcast. That wraps up this episode of How to Play, but be sure to visit us on our website, www.howtoplaypodcast.com for all the How to Play resources, to discuss the show, to contact me, or to show your appreciation for the show with a PayPal donation. I count on your support to help keep How to Play growing. If you use and love the How to Play podcast, I need your help. Show your appreciation by making a donation, spread the word about the show, and just let me know what you think about the show there at the Guild. Thanks again to you, the How to Play listeners around the world. And until next time, I hope you will learn, teach, and play great games. The How to Play podcast is part of the Dice Tower Network, the premier board gaming media network, featuring Ludology and the flagship podcast, The Dice Tower. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com.